From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And away we go. Just one more welcome uh, to KGBR-FM in Medford, Oregon, our latest affiliate, which uh, brings the number to 22, I believe. And we've got a few stations uh, in the works. Uh, They're pending. Once the ink is dry on the, uh, the contracts, we'll be making some more announcements soon, we hope. But the Conspiracy Show Network, if you will, is uh, growing brick by brick, building it. And just keep those affiliates coming. All right. I want to give you a heads up what's coming up a little later in this hour before we bring Nelson Thal on, our media scientist, to discuss some interesting biblical prophecies uh, with regards to Syria. Uh, recently, we lost Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. Who is Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., uh, you may ask? Well, he's a, uh, he was a physician uh, who claimed to have handled alien debris from the Roswell UFO crash. And, uh, of course, that happened in 1947. And he was 76, and he was doing what he loved best at the time. He was reading a book about uh, UFOs. I, I interviewed uh, Jesse Jr. Uh, years ago at another radio station. And uh, over the past, oh, 35 years, I guess, he's appeared on TV shows, and he's appeared on documentaries and radio shows like mine, uh, articles, magazine articles, books. He traveled the world, really, uh, lecturing about his experiences in, in Roswell. And his father, it was his father, uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., who was an Air Force intelligence officer, and reportedly the first military officer to investigate the wreckage in early July of 47. So Jesse Jr. would have been about 10 at the time, and his father brings home some of this debris, I, I think, in the back of a pickup truck. He wakes Jesse Jr. up in the middle of the night and told his son, you need to come out here and look at this because it's something you will never see again. And uh, the item, I I believe he spread it out on either the living room floor or the kitchen floor. And the item that uh, Jesse Jr. said fascinated him the most was this small beam with some sort of purple-hued hieroglyphics on it. And after initial report that a flying saucer had been recovered on a ranch near Roswell, of course, the military issued a statement saying the debris was from a weather balloon. But the Marcel family were told to keep it quiet, and they did for years and years and years. However, when physicist and UFO researcher Stanton Friedman uh, spoke with Jesse Marcel uh, Sr. in the late 70s, he broke that silence. And of course, Friedman wrote the, the foreword to Jesse Jr.'s 2007 book, The Roswell Legacy. And he described him as a courageous man who set a standard for honesty and decency and telling the truth. Anyway, we will uh, speak with uh, our good friend Victor Vigiani from uh, from uh, Zealand News Network towards the uh, bottom of the hour, or maybe a little bit later. And also uh, Paula Harris. Uh, Paula Harris is uh, a journalist who has been covering the UFO ET issue uh, for many years, and uh, they've both spoken with Dr. Marcel. 
So we'll get their their feedback on um, exactly what he meant, I guess, to the UFO disclosure movement. Uh, we will get to Nelson Thal, our media scientist. We're just waiting to hook up with him on Skype, I guess. And uh, if you're listening, Nelson, get over there, get on that Skype microphone, and uh, my producer Tim will get in touch with you. Uh, but I, this is stems from a, an interesting email that I received from uh, someone. And uh, they actually texted me uh, and said that it's interesting what's going on right now with Syria, specifically Damascus. And if the United States launches a cruise missile attack against Damascus, it kind of lines up with some biblical prophecy, specifically Isaiah 17, Old Testament, Isaiah 17. And I believe it says something about Damascus being destroyed and being cut off. Damascus being cut off from uh, Jerusalem, which is interesting. Uh, supposedly, Jeru- uh, Damascus recently sealed all roads. They sealed their roads to Jerusalem in anticipation of some sort of an attack. Uh, but Isaiah 17 saying that Damascus will be cut off. Nelson, of course, is our media scientist, assassination researcher, but he's also uh, quite a student of the Bible and biblical prophecy in particular. So we're going to find out what, in fact, Isaiah says about Syria. And uh, there is also, I believe, several verses in the book of Amos which discusses Syria. So is this a fulfillment of biblical prophecy if Syria is attacked and perhaps destroyed? Nelson Thal, do we have you? Yeah, I'm here. There we are, buddy. You were trying to call us, and we were trying to call you. That's all right. So I get this uh, text from someone who says, check out Isaiah. It lines up perfectly with what's going on in Syria, uh, the destruction of Damascus and, and so forth. What can you tell us about, let's start with Isaiah. What does it say about Damascus? You know, as a researcher, we research these things and don't bring our own opinion to bear on it. It's interesting to watch because it's certainly given a lot of discussion in the in scripture you find about what's going to happen to syria but um so much of it is the british M- american the brit am empires are under attack and losing because of their being under as a result of jacob's trouble and uh, so the tribes of joseph are in a panic mode and they have to then um use means necessary to, uh, to prop up their system and so far the best way of doing it is to is to use the vehicle of warfare as a way of strengthening the dollars okay so let's look at isaiah 17 a prophecy against damascus now it says see damascus will no longer be a city but will become a heap of ruins yes the cities of aurora I'm not forsaken. Will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. And, and of course, that's London. Ephraim is London? No, Ephraim is Britain and America. Well, Britain right now in Canada, Ephraim. But the fortress is London. That's the, the fortress also will cease from Ephraim. And that includes the Stone of Scone, right? Which is right now in Ephraim. Okay. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. Well, I, I don't know if these remaining chapters refer to Damascus, but see, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down and no one to make them afraid. 
the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. And of course, Richard, this is all to do with uh, man's misrule of the planet is being is in the process of being undermined. All right. What leads us to believe, though, that this specific chapter about Damascus being ruined pertains to today? I mean, I know there's the possibility of an impending cruise missile attack against Damascus, but Damascus has been threatened before throughout the ages. Why do we think that this time that the the biblical prophecy is speaking to this event in 2013? Well, Damascus is the oldest city on the planet, one of the oldest that was around at the time of Abraham even before his name was Abraham when at the time of Abram, and it's one of the oldest cities on the planet. And so it's very much involved in the misrule of the planet and involved in man's misrule of the planet. And the process of it being undermined is what's happening, and it doesn't happen overnight, instantly, although Babylon did fall in one night. And it's interesting to note that um, the American Empire could fall in just one night as well, if Babylon could fall in one night, so could the United States of America, just by having the river of the Internet cut off, just like uh, the Persians diverted the, the Euphrates and the troops marched under the walls of Babylon. And in one night, uh, the Feast of Belshazzar depicts this, in one night, the handwriting is on the wall, they're weighed in the balance and found wanting, and they're, they're defeated. And the same thing has happened to America uh, many, many Tekla Parson, they've been weighed in the balance, they've been found wanting, and they're being taken down. Are there other examples uh, in, in the Old Testament? Someone mentioned the book of Amos that talks about the destruction of Damascus. Yeah, it, it is mentioned in Amos, in the first chapter of Amos as well. So there's no doubt that Damascus is definitely going to be the center of violence and the center of world problems, and that's exactly what we're seeing taking place today. It's right in the center of world problems. Everybody is up in arms about what's going on in Damascus. So do you, do you see this coming then to a, to a fruition? Do you see well, we don't an, an attack on Damascus? It, it doesn't necessarily happen. Um, I don't think Damascus is going to be wiped off the map. And quite frankly, you know, Richard, when you really look at it, let's not forget that We've already had an Iran hostage crisis. And, uh, you know, Walt, our good friend, Mr. Tarpley, his organization put out a tremendous book by Dreyfus, you'll recall, called Hostage to Khomeini, which basically showed that that whole Iranian hostage thing with, with you know what I mean by the hostage thing. Yes, 79, yes. run by the ONI on Pennsylvania Avenue, right out of the ONI, under the nose of the U.S. president. And that is exactly what happened. It's a great book. It's called Hostage to Khomeini, and Webster's group brought it out back in the late 70s, as you recall. So, All right. Nelson, can you hold so on Iran for a second? and Syria are all um, satrapies of the West. Okay. Hold on, Nelson, if you could. We'll come back, and we'll uh, continue to look at this maybe from a, bi- a biblical uh, prophecy standpoint. Nelson Thal on the, uh, on the line, Skype, actually, joining us here on The Conspiracy Show as we discuss biblical prophecy and Syria. Stay with us.
Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Nelson Thaler, media scientist, is with us uh, talking about biblical prophecy and Syria. I received a, a text message uh, earlier in the day from someone who says that Isaiah 17 uh, from the Old Testament is uh, coming to fruition right now as, as the United States readies to perhaps launch a cruise missile attack against uh, Damascus and punish Syria for what it claims are chemical warfare attacks against its own citizens, although earlier... Uh, we talked with Webster Tarpley, and um, I mean, evidence seems to be mounting that, in fact, the insurgents, not the Assad regime, are responsible uh, for these chemical attacks. They're the ones in possession of the, of the sarin gas and so forth, which seems to be funneled in from uh, perhaps Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. Uh, but Nelson is here to talk about this from a biblical prophecy perspective. So we talked about Isaiah 17 and, and uh, uh, how Damascus will be uh, destroyed. Uh, there's also something, it's often called the, the, uh, the missing prophecy, uh, and that's Psalm 83. What is, or Psalm 38, I, I believe it is, Nelson. What, what does that say? Well, basically what that says is it completes the story about how, um, uh, scripture says that the Lord would use a, a rod to discipline his people, that they were a lawless nation, and he would use the Assyrians as his rod, and uh, uh, because of duality of the Bible, uh, he already used that, uh, the Assyrians, back in 722, approximately, B.C., and now he's bringing them back into captivity again using the Assyrian rod. And you see that in verse 8, Assyria also has joined with them. And you basically have Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites. You get Amalek and Ammon, and we know of those, and Philistia is the, the Palestinians. So you basically have the Jordanians and the Palestinians here and the other Arabs all getting together in what it says in verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. And other good uh, uh, translations of the Bible use that word and uh, translate it as, because of course it's being translated from the Hebrew, um, conf- they translate it in some versions as conspiracy against you. And again, we're talking about uh, Psalm 83. 83 I think I... verse 5 is they form a conspiracy or a confederacy against you, and it gives who it is. And this, of course, is the group that then takes uh, Britain and America and the sons of Joseph into captivity at the end time. So in other words, Psalm 83 is predicting uh, some sort of climactic concluding all-out Arab-Israeli war. That's right, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right now, because these things don't necessarily um, materialize and break surface and come. We've had many wars now in Iraq and Iran, and we've had many wars in the Middle East, and we've had many wars against the Shiites, because the Shiites' leader claims divinity, claims to be divine, just like the emperor of Japan used to do, but the leader of the Sunnis, he doesn't claim divinity. And that makes for a big problem, because now the Vatican and Rome go after the Shiites over the Sunnis, because their leader claims divinity, and only in Rome can that have the emperor claim that. Although this time, I mean, when you look at what's, what's happening, and, and who's involved, and who is sort of allied with each other, you've got Russia, 
uh, allied with the Syrians. You have Syria allied with Iran and vice versa. Uh, and so if there's an attack, let's say the United States launches a cruise missile against Damascus, that could you could see how that could very quickly escalate escalate bring in the Russians uh, perhaps you know Syria would would and, and Assad has said so that if and there is create an ex- the necessary conditions so that you're on the brink of world war so someone can stay, step in one person and claim and make peace exactly and that would be the Antichrist according to biblical prophecy right creating a false a, a false peace. Exactly. But the other thing that's really humorous when you really know, think about it, Richard, is with, with this Syrian thing, just to stay current, you know, uh, Mahar Arar was a 9-11 whistleblower, and Bush, he was on his way to New York to spill the beans on P-TECH software and how they deceived the air traffic controllers, and Bush had him intercepted and taken to Lebanon and then to Syria. So if a 9-11 whistleblower is sent to Syria by Bush... You know, that's a satrapy of them, of I.G. Farben and the Rockefeller gang. Yes, and for those who, who have short memories, this is back in, you know, 2006, 2007. This was a Canadian citizen who was born in Syria. He came to Canada in 1987. And um, I think he very, you know, intelligent man, master's, master's degree in computer programming, and claims he was... Uh, he was shackled, put in a van, and, and, and taken to Syria where he was, he was tortured. Um, and in Syria. Now, the way the world works, uh, Richard, is um, uh, uh, Bush has a long list each month of checks that go out to people who are uh, extorting him. He's got a huge extortion list that he has to pay each month. Don't forget these guys. And the, the games that they play, they play a... You know, they're always uh, looking to make more and conflict as a way of keeping control. Right. Now, the the U.S. claims that he was simply deported. He was, um, uh, they say he was suspected of being a member of al-Qaeda, and they deported him to his native Syria, although we know that the CIA had these, uh, what did they call them, uh, uh, rendition flights? Yeah. Where they were sending people uh, to various countries, including Syria, where... They were basically tortured by, you know, Syrian intelligence or whomever trying to extract information. So, yeah, it is odd that why would, if this, in fact, was a case of extraordinary rendition, uh, you know, you why would the want U.S. That information to get in the hands? They, the Syrians could pick up the phone and call Bush and go, "We got this guy here with his P-Tech software, and he's got all the tapes showing what you did on 9/11." Send us a check for $50 million to our Swiss bank account. But they didn't do that because they're basically a satrapy of that whole Bush junta. Interesting. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's uh, listen, JFK warned we stand on the shoulders of giants. JFK warned us that the danger to the republic and the rights of the individual was the secret societies. And he... And, uh, and uh, he warned America of coming enslavement, and that's that's right there in the open. Well, when we, when we talked to Webster Tarpley uh, recently on the program, talking about Syria, he he kept mentioning uh, the Skull and Bones uh, connection. Of course, John Kerry was a member of Skull and Bones at about the same time, I believe, as as George W. Bush was attending Yale, and he too was tapped to be a bonesman. Uh, yeah, so these, and, these and, bonesmen keep coming, popping up. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and if you've mentioned the Skull and Bonesmen, don't forget Book and Snake. 
the other society, secret satanic society. And don't forget that the world leaders have been gathering and worshiping Baal at Bohemian Grove for 200 years. The leaders of the world. Right. The, 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 that secret society you just mentioned, the name again? The Bohemian Grove. No, 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 no. The, the, uh, I mentioned Skull and Bones. You mentioned another secret society. Well, the, I just said the, the, the world leaders have been worshipping ah, okay. Baal. All right. I thought you mentioned another society that uh, No, just was world leaders. Have right. been, the prime ministers and presidents of, the, of all the world's countries have been gathering and worshipping that owl, Baal, at, at Bohemian Grove for 200 years. What other... Alex Jones broke in and taped the ceremony called the Cremation of Care. And, of course, um, uh, 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 what's-his-name did the Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick did Eyes Wide Shut, which showed that that whole power source that controls what's going on worldwide. And so it's not like nothing. We're not saying anything that Kubrick isn't saying and lots of other interesting, important artists out there that have been trying to warn us about these things. Again, from a biblical prophecy point of view, Nelson, what other signs should we be looking for that might indicate that we are, you know, nearing, uh, I don't know, World War III or, or Armageddon? Well, remember this, that uh, biblically it says that when they say, peace, peace, be careful, then there will not be peace. But we're not living in a time when they're saying, peace, peace, there'll be no... We're living in a time when they're saying, war, war, we're going to war, war, war. I don't really think as much is going to come out of all this right now. I think they're sowing the seeds for future endeavors and... It's all a psyops. This whole thing's a huge psyops, Richard, right now, I think. I don't think much is going to come of it. It's just a big play on the global stage, all scripted. Okay, but let's, let's talk about uh, setting aside what's going on right now for a moment. What are sort of the, the, the signs that we are, in the, we are entering into Jacob's yeah, Troubles well, or the Tribulation? Signs, the great book with 14 signs by, by a Mr. Uh, Dr. Rod Meredith. Of Dr. Rod Merrin's 14 signs of uh, announcing Christ's return, and I think that you that will show you a lot of the things of earthquakes and floods and weather disturbances and all sorts of big, more powerful things. Powers bigger than man are going to start to be used, and I think we're seeing that with the hurricanes and the floods and the uh, Fujiyamas, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, uh, as I said, I think really the, the from a biblical standpoint, the Bible basically talks about the um, the fact that man's misrule of the planet is undermined. Well, we're certainly seeing an end as as, uh, as Christ comes comes to return to earth. Well, what, you know, one the can... kings of the ar- the kings and ar- the kings of the earth it says in the Bible are gathering the armies of the earth to do battle at Armageddon. So that's what they're doing. All these wars and terrorism and everything helps the nations put the kings of the planet, start getting all their armies together for one big battle. Well, if you look at the weather, you know, you can tick that box off. We're certainly getting that, that, those strange, you know, severe weather uh, patterns. We're seeing, you know, we have the wars and rumors of war. You can tick that box. I mean, one could say that we are fast approaching, if not already uh, heading into the... That, that period you call Jacob's trouble or the tribulation. Yeah, and the, and the great tribulation on, a, on another level is the, is the tribalization 
the retribalization, because as we retribalize, we become less civilized, and therefore the rule of law goes out the window, and we move back into what is being obviously the rule of the jungle is what's taking over on the planet. All right, listen, before we let you go, we just got a couple minutes. I want to get your take on uh, last week on the program, Jeffrey Steinberg joined us to talk about uh, Princess Diana. Of course, just a few days ago, we had the anniversary, uh, the 17th anniversary of her, what some would uh, describe as her murder. Yeah. Uh, we, there was a, um, uh, an article that came out yesterday from Sue Reed, who I interviewed in her home in, in, in uh, London suburb for the TV show, talking about Princess Diana being murdered by a British soldier. Right. Uh, an SAS sniper, uh, apparently involved. Scotland Yard is looking into this. Metropolitan Police are looking into this. What do you make of it? <laughs> we've um, we've said before that um, there was a great. It's, this is a heinous crime. It's no different than many of the crimes which have been documented by William Shakespeare about the House of Hanover and the other houses, the Stuarts, etc. And um, the monarch knew, I'm sure the queen realized that once Lady Di and Charles divorced, that um, if she had uh, passed away at that point, uh, Charles would not have the ability to lay claim to the throne as strong and powerfully as Lady Diana could. And obviously her brother still can. So there's a lot going on there behind the scenes that uh, are invisible to the to the media and only visible to those people in mostly the intelligence community and in the uh, and who know where to watch and who the people to watch are but the, certainly the, the, the keep your eye on the throne of England and the stone of scone don't forget the stone of scone uh, when they moved it from London to uh, Scotland last time Richard you and I on another station um, noted it and said, what does it mean? And we said, well, maybe some big shot like Diana or Philip would be taken out. Whenever there's some, that thing moves, there's a vacuum in power, and it causes and triggers an assassination, just like we had in World War I with the uh, Archduke's assassination triggered World War I. But right now, you know, they're saying war, war, war. So I don't think there's going to be the wars right now. They're saying it too loudly. All right, Nelson. I appreciate it, as always. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It was great being on, and uh, uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank right you on. a lot. Nelson Thought. Good night. Good night. All right, when we come back, our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network and Paula Harris, a journalist toiling in uh, the UFO field for many years, will discuss the passing of Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., one of the last live connections to the UFO wreckage at Roswell. When the Conspiracy Show returns, stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Earlier this week, uh, we lost uh, one of the key witnesses to the uh, UFO crash in uh, Roswell, New Mexico, back in July of 1947, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., uh, who handled some of that debris from the 1947 crash, uh, died at the age of 76 doing what he loved best, reading a book about UFOs. 
he was found dead at his home in Helena, um, Helena, Montana, Saturday, less than two months after making his last trip to Roswell, New Mexico. And over the last 35 years, he appeared on uh, numerous TV shows, documentaries, radio shows, interviewed for magazine articles and books, traveled the world, lecturing about his experiences in Roswell. And uh, here to uh, tell us more about what Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. meant uh, to the disclosure movement uh, and to UFO research is our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Hello, Victor. How are you? Hello, Richard. This is me here, and I uh, hope you can hear me okay. We can indeed. Thank you for joining us, and also joining, joining us on the line from her home in Colorado, uh, one of the finest journalists working in this field, and uh, that, of course, is Paula Harris. Hello, Paula. How are you? Hi, Richard. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm doing well here in Colorado. We're going to be talking very, about a very sad situation for ufology. Indeed. First of all, uh, uh, now this goes to both of you. Just jump in, either of you. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. I, I, I alluded uh, earlier to you know the fact that he was you know, about 10 years old when the Roswell crash happened and his father who was an, an Army intelligence officer stationed at the, uh, the Roswell Army Airfield, uh, brought all this debris home and, and woke, woke up Jess, a young Jesse in the middle of the night and said, you've got to come see this. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that night. Well, Richard, uh, 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 he told me all about this when he came to Italy. Uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. came to Italy in my last conference that I sponsored in 2007. He came uh, with his family, and they wanted to go to Florence, and he spoke in Rome. And I was able personally to sit with him and talk about this because uh, he was 11 years old, and what happened was his father, it was late at night, uh, around 11 or 12, when he brought this box home and said to his son and his wife, you're going to see something from out of this world that you'll never see again, and spread all this material on the kitchen floor. And what I learned then, because I didn't know it, because we talked about an I-beam, but there was more than one I-beam. He told me there were like five or six I-beams that he oh, that had this hieroglyphics on them that had this like violet hue to it. And his father said, you'll never see anything like this again, and then, you know, boxed it up and brought it in. And just very succinctly, I'll just tell you that uh, he... Uh, he said my father was an intelligence officer. He certainly wouldn't have brought home pieces of a mogul balloon. And this is so logical, and that's why the, the uh, Air Force's uh, formal statement, even today, is that it was a secret mogul balloon project and the bodies were crash test dummies. So, so Victor, you can take over from there because, you know, you heard the testimony at the citizen hearing that he and his children did. Yeah, I guess he was too ill to attend that, wasn't he, uh, Victor? The no, he was hearings? there. Oh, no, he, oh, he, he was, was there? there. Ah, yeah. I thought it was a video testimony. My apologies. No, no, no. He, no. Was, he, was, he, he wasn't. He was, the video testimony was mm-hmm. uh, Edgar Mitchell. Ah, okay. So so uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. was there in Washington at the disclosure hearings in late April, early May. We're going to hear that clip in a moment. But, Victor, did you get a, get a chance to speak with uh, uh, Jesse at all at that time? Yeah. Yes, I've, uh, like, like yourself, um, I believe on one night, we've interviewed him twice actually on the program. Uh, Richard, one one night, I um, when you gave me the privilege of doing the show, I actually did interview uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. Um, for about an hour, and uh, I recall it very vividly because I was up at the cottage at the time, and I did the telephone interview 
uh, by telephone, and it was quite an eye opener, as as Paula indicated, that you know it, someone who is you know ten or eleven years old, and one night uh, your father makes a side trip from a debris field and uh, drives his 1942 Buick in the driveway, and then hauls out a box, and as Paula said, empties the box out into the kitchen table, and shows uh, them some material from out of this world. You can be guaranteed that this was not just something that was out of the uh, just out of the ordinary, but it was absolutely extraordinary. So it was quite clear that not only did uh, did Jesse Marcel Jr. as a young boy witness all of this, he saw all of these things unfold, and then he was able to retell the story many many times uh, over over his career as both an intelligence officer and as a medical doctor. And traveling the world, he's uh, been very very articulate in the way he has accounted himself and stood up for some of the criticism that his father, uh, Jesse Mar Sr., uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., took uh, in terms of the criticism he took in regards to uh, what all of this meant in terms of the debris, etc., and the bodies and the and the different kinds of uh, debris that was, was picked up, and also, too, some of the technologies uh, that were passed along because of it. Now, when you do hear the, the clip, um, in, in a few moments, I guess we can get to it. It's about a minute and a half clip at the Citizen Hearings in Washington at the end of April and the beginning of May. Uh, Jesse was very, very specific and saying several things about this and he said very clearly that there uh, um, the information he got from the person who interviewed him that this was a shadow government they expended a lot of money to try to keep this thing secret these are non-elected people who are in fact in charge and still are in charge of the debris and this is something that Jesse Marcel uh, stated very clearly when uh, asked the question by former congressman uh, Merrill Cook all right we'll uh, take a time out when we come back we'll hear uh the clip from the late Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, speaking uh, in Washington at the disclosure hearing, uh, presenting this before about five former members of the, the United States Congress. Joining us on the line from Colorado, Paula Harris, UFO journalist, writer, photographer, and uh, Victor Vigiani, of course, the executive director of Zealand News Network, as we discuss the passing of Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, joining us on the line from Colorado, Paula Harris, UFO uh, journalist, photographer, and uh, Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zealand News Network. Of course, uh, my constant companion when we talk about uh, UFOs and ETs here on the show. We're discussing the, the passing of a Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, earlier in the week. Now... Uh, we're going to play a clip here. Uh, Tim, do we have that ready? This is uh, Dr. Marcel Jr. Sp- uh, speaking at the uh, UFO disclosure hearings in Washington uh, back in the spring. Here's the door. I called to Washington, and uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Marcel who wanted to interview me when I got to Washington. And uh, he was in the uh, Capitol building, Center Room 228, I believe. Right. He said he wanted to talk to me about, about what I saw in Roswell. So I went to the Capitol building, and uh, very friendly, very nice gentleman. He said, uh, no, we won't talk about what you saw in Roswell. 
And I said, well, sir, I'm not, not saying he uh, had said publicly already. He said, but I might tell you something. So uh, we went down into the basements, <laughs> several floors down below in the Capitol building, and there was this beautiful meeting room. And uh, when I was sat down, he sat at the head of the table. I sat to his right. He had a legal pad, and there was a book on the table, too. It's called Majestic. Uh, it was a book by Whitley Strieber, and he said, this is not fiction. So he admitted to me right there, this is not fiction. This is a story about the module, you know, and fictionalized. And I said, I know it is. Uh, so what are you guys going to tell the public about this? And he said, well, you know, if it's up to me, I'd have done it yesterday. But he says, it's not up to me. I'm just here to investigate the cost of the investigation costs of keeping it secret and all that. To, uh, in reality, there is, and th- these are his words, uh, there's a black government, which comes from the territorial, but uh, that's what he said. He said, they have control of the debris. They're not elected, and they have limited funds to spend, and they have control of it. You tell me what that but that's what he said. Thank you. Paul, I'm sure you've, you've you already heard the testimony, but let me just get get you to comment on on what you just heard, uh, well, Dr. Marcel you know, Jr. This is, this is really important testimony, Richard. I was there, sitting in the front row during the whole all the citizen, you know, testimony, and I, I think uh, you know Victor might be interested in this too. I just got an email from Carolyn Kirkpatrick, who was uh, uh, one of the sen- um, councilwomen there on the panel, and, and she said that she was so saddened by the passing of Jesse Marcel Jr. because she respected and honored the man for his testimony, and she was extremely concerned that we're going to lose one right after another of, of the, uh, of the uh, people that testified those four days. And, you know, this is just the first of many that are of a certain age, and we're going to lose these people, and that's what's so darn serious. And I, I just personally hope that, you know, those people that were on the panel um, are still around to be able to bring this to the next level before we lose these, these witnesses. And besides being a personal friend, and it's very sad that he passed on because he was a personal friend, my fear is we still have older people like Edgar Mitchell, like Robert Dean, like a lot of people that have done so much for disclosure and are, and I, and I have a, a clip of Jesse Marcel where he says, I hope this happens in my lifetime. And of course it didn't. So I'm going to just end by saying, I hope this happens in my lifetime. Well, the, the, the remarkable thing I find is, is, uh, that here was, you know, a doctor and, 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 and people try to impugn his character and they tried to impugn the character of his father, uh, you know, distinguished military record. But, the thing was, he didn't have to do this. He has, he had a, a reputation. Uh, he didn't have to go out on a limb and, and 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 talk about this. He could have kept quiet like he was told to, but he didn't. Well, I, I think that's a really important point. I mean, he could have very, very simply just, you know, hid behind the bushes and just, uh, um, you know, let things lie the way they did. But uh, unfortunately, he. Um, um, he, he was pressed by, or fortunately, I think he was pressed by some sort of internal uh, compulsion to really bring this information forward. And I think one of the reasons why he did it was because his father, this is just my own impression, and maybe Paula can you know, comment on this too, that his father was discredited so widely 
um, and also manipulated by several uh, people within the uh, United States Air Force at the time, actually the United States Army Air Force at the time, you know, Colonel Blanchard uh, among them, uh, along with many, many others. Uh, the, his father was discredited and, and uh, told to do things and demanded um, uh, to do things that really just weren't right. And number one thing, posing with some fake uh, foil material in a picture that's, uh, that's supposed to be what was found in the in the field outside of uh, uh, you know the uh, the Foster Ranch. And I'm not exactly sure why Jesse Marcel Sr. was cajoled or how he sort of uh, even uh, agreed to pose with what he saw was the wrong thing and I guess you can really that really attests to the, uh, the the amount of manipulation and the authority and power and influence of the, the United States government to make people do um, something that's contrary to their own personal integrity well he, so had, a, he could, had a young family I mean you've pointed out to me a number of times that there were secret service on the ground in Roswell telling people if you speak you know there's a big desert out there they will never find your body that's right. Yeah, so you can tell that kind of pressure really did make certain people do things that they didn't want to do, but because of that kind of pressure and, and pressure on their family and those kinds of threats, I guess really they had no other alternative but to be part of the cover-up in a very unwitting and unwilling kind of way, which is extremely unfortunate, but that's the way the United States government works. The, the level of manipulation at that level is so profoundly uh, powerful that people really have no choice, and this, this kind of stuff goes on every Every single day, and it definitely went on a whole lot uh, during that period of time, just after what was found on the Brazil uh, by Max Brazel. Uh, Paula, can you tell me more? You've, you've obviously heard this before. We've heard it from uh, you know people like Paul Hellier talking about this shadow government that's keeping a lid on the uh, the UFO file, and and this is what Jesse Marcel Jr. talked about in the in the hearings. That this is what he ran up against. You've heard well, this from other. Well, this is the same warning that that Eisenhower made when he said, "Be careful of the military industrial complex." What he said was that this technology, and you know, Richard, they're not going to throw it in the trash if they find a crash saucer. You know they're going to try to figure out how it works, and you know they're going to be fascinated with the propulsion system. And we're talking 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Uh, and, and, and what they, what, what had happened was that they, in the effort to back engineer this stuff, in the effort to, and we won't even go to back engineering craft and Area 51, and that's another big story that just came out that Area 51 exists. Well, we knew that. Uh, and the thing is that, that you're going to, uh, farm this out to, to private companies that have a vested interest in this. And that's, I think, what they mean by the shadow government. They don't mean necessarily the Congress. I think the Congress doesn't know. I think a lot of uh, elected officials, certainly those people that were at the citizen hearing, their jaws dropped. They had no idea this was real. So I think what we're talking about is the ones that are making money off this technology, that are keeping it hidden, that are siphoning funds uh, to, to do these black ops programs. And uh, what's interesting, and I'm going to add this, is that when Jesse testified, he had Denise Marcel, and she's his daughter, that called me about his, her father dying. And uh, Jesse Marcel was third with him, so he had his two children and him who, uh, uh, who testified at the citizen hearing. And the two kids talked about their grandfather talking about this to them when they were little kids. Because the grandfather had to live with this secret, the burden of truth. 
uh, we just have a few moments, but uh, can either of you talk to me about the work that, that Jesse, uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. did working with artists to try and reconstruct what he saw in those eye beams and the hieroglyphics? I'm not, yeah, I'm not too familiar with uh, the specifics of the exact, um, uh, he, he said that there were more than one eye beam, that's for sure, and I know that the one eye beam that he did see uh, was replicated, um, and I'm trying to think back as to exactly who did the, the replication for him, but there were a couple of others. I believe it was fabricated, yes, that's right, it was Miller Johnson of uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, who helped um, Jesse Marcel Jr. actually f- refabricate uh, the one of the I-beams that he saw. And the, the refabrication that uh, that the Johnson did, uh, I know Jesse Marcel um, Jr. said it was a very very accurate um, re-representation of what what he saw. The symbols on this very very small, almost eighteen to uh, maybe twenty inches long eye beam uh, with these small hieroglyphics on it. So um, that that's something that they refabricated, and I think it uh, well represented what he saw. In addition to that, not only um, uh, was it just the foil um, that, that, that he may comment on, uh, because back in 1996, I, I visited Corona myself, and I spoke with Lu, uh, Louise Proctor, who um, uh, Max Brazel actually brought some of the foil to, and they sat on their front step, and they tried to pound a nail through this stuff and tried to bend it, and Louise Proctor was very, very clear to me when I, when I spoke with her that there's just no way this stuff uh, uh, was, was of this earth. They just could not do anything to it. So all of these things that, that were brought into the into, uh, and onto the kitchen table of the Marcel home uh, back in 1947, you, you can be sure that, that that stuff was not made of this earth. And the United States government has gone a long, long way to covering it up and to a lot of expense, too. If it was just foil, why would they ask Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, to go to a, a room in the Capitol building and be told that um, the, the book that Whitley Strieber wrote about the, uh, the Roswell question was not... Was not fiction. Um, these people are going to extraordinary lengths to cover up something that was in fact real. Uh, this foil that you mentioned, Victor, it, it also had another unusual quality. Was this the foil that, when you crumpled it up, it basically had it, it snapped back to its former shape? Yeah, uh, the reports that we have, and and I, and having visited um, uh, the, the the actual uh, uh, local bar and spoke to people back then, that the folklore is, and and of course talking to Louise Proctor again, you could really kind of scrunch this stuff up, um, uh, and and it would just zip back or pop back into its original form with no creases in it. And people tried to drive nails through it. They tried to cut it. They tried to burn it. And there was no way that any kind of external force that was used on it was successful in changing this stuff's shape or, or form. So, um, you know, you get that kind of uh, uh, material way back then. I mean, I could understand possibly that stuff being fabricated now. Uh, maybe, but not likely. But back in 1947 or before, uh, there's just no way that that stuff was a product of, uh, of conventional technology so uh, in essence and, and also too you know when you get two or three hundred army um, you know soldiers marching through a field uh, you know arm lockstep arm in arm picking up little pieces of this stuff um, you can be sure the United States government has gone out of their way to cover this this information up and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind and I'm, I'm sure that Paul would agree that the United States government is in possession 
of, of, of off-world material, and they still, for some reason, will not uh, let the public have access to this information. All right, just about uh, 30 seconds. Uh, Paula, uh, a final word on uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr. Well, we'll miss him. Uh, the UFO community will miss him. He's one of the courageous ones, one of the ones we call the heroes. And let's not forget his citizen uh, hearing testimony. All right, Paula Harris, uh, a new revised edition available of your book, UFOs, How Does One Speak to a Ball of Lights? Uh, you can get an autographed copy, and uh, th- that can be ordered through PaulaHarris.com. And Paula is P-A-O-L-A. P-A-O-L-A, Harris.com. Thank you for this, Paula. Thank you, Richard. Victor, as always, my friend, thank you. We'll talk to you soon, Richard. Bye-bye. All right, Tim Spreen, thank you for production. Back next week with a brand new show. I'm sure 9-11 will will figure large in that program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.